I'm Tavis Smiley. I'm Everyday People, and uh, I'm delighted to have you, Everyday People, tuned into our program today, and especially in this hour. And in this hour, our guest is Ronald Olivier, who was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for second-degree murder in one of America's most notoriously brutal prisons, the Louisiana State Penitentiary, better known to most of us as Angola. We've all heard about Angola. He lost his life but found it again inside a prison cell. Following a miraculous release, which we'll get to, of course, in this hour, he transitioned, get this, from incarceration to director of chaplaincy at the Mississippi State Penitentiary. It is quite the story in this hour, Ronald Olivier in his own words. Ronald, how are you today, sir? Good to have you on this program. Oh, great, great, wonderful, man. Glad to be here, man. I'm delighted to have you on. I'm glad we got the hour. There's a whole lot to unpack about your backstory, and I hope that this conversation, uh, I'm certain that it will be instructive, informative, inspiring, empowering uh, for all those who um, get a chance to to hear. So thank you um, for the opportunity. Um, Ronald has a book out. It's called 27 Summers, My Journey to Freedom, Forgiveness and Redemption, during my time in Angola prison. And there's a whole lot to unpack just in that title. For starters, 27 summers, then his journey to freedom, then forgiveness, then redemption. And all of this taking place during his time in Angola. Uh, A whole lot to unpack. I don't need much more than just the title to take this thing for the next hour. Uh, But there's a a lot inside the book uh, that we'll get to uh, in this hour. Uh, Ronald, let me start with this. I'm watching uh, this clock. I'm going to manage this as nice as we can to give the audience a a taste of your story. Can't do justice to it in these uh, 50 plus minutes. Uh, but let me start with this question. Tell me about um, your upbringing, where you were born, where you were raised. I want to just set the stage for what life was like uh, for young Ronald. Well, um, I grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana, mm-hmm. a very poverty-stricken area. Um, I can remember um, my, my family, my mother moved from the seven ward to the eight ward. You know, New Orleans is um, separated into different wards. Mm-hmm. And... And so we moved to the eight wall. I, I never forget when we moved there. Um, very nice, calm neighborhood. Um, I used to stand on my porch and feed the birds. And but something happened in the late eighteen in the late nineteen eighties, where um, man, this crack epidemic came and completely destroyed the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and and where it came when, was drug drugs brought violence you know a lot of violence came um to the point where um the birds didn't even come out anymore um mm. that's how that's how bad it was and so um also during this period of transition in my neighborhood um my dad who man was my hero still is man um have a real great father and he, he was making a transition from New Orleans to Baton Rouge. You know, prior to that, I spent weekends with him, summers, um, some holidays. And he was always there, even though we didn't, you know, stay in the same household. He was always there. And so when he when he moved, man, it, 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 it literally rocked my world. Mm. And I kind of, just, just 14, 15-year-old, couldn't digest that. I didn't know how to process that, and I was I'm very angry. Um, I was hurt and and I, I felt abandoned. Mm. And 
And so here it is, um, during that time, the transition in the, in, in, in the neighborhood, the crack epidemic. And so there was a lot of, um, lot of violence. Um, it was very common to hear gunshots and, and, and sirens all through the night, you know, till I became accustomed to that and seeing people get shot, um, seeing, seeing people get killed and seeing bodies in the street as a result of gun violence and all. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, my dad wasn't there. And so, Hey, the streets began to follow me, mm. you know, it became, it became survival, you know, um, till I had a gun everywhere I went. And so, um, as soon as drug dealers and began to be appealing to me, I liked the, the cars they had, the rims and stuff, the sound that they had and they coming from their cars and, and all the females that attracted. So that's where I, I kind of set my focus to. And me and a couple of my friends started selling drugs. And so um, that that was the, the trade we chose at the moment. And, mm-hmm. and But they had other people in the neighborhoods, you know, um, that had another trade. They, their trade was to rob the drug dealers. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, Man, it it had got so bad to where they would rob so many people that they would forget who they robbed and end up pumping gas next to them or in the store and it was getting killed. And so instead of finding them another profession, they chose that whoever we rob, we're going to have to kill them. And so that put the drug dealers on alert. And, man, a lot of violence, a lot of um, people died from that. But um, and so that's the that's the setting of what I'm growing up in. Sure. You know, um, a, no. kid, a kid's greatest teacher is not what they hear; is what they see. Mm-hmm. And so I became a part of that. Mm. Um, that's a, that's a beautiful setup. Uh, it's a beautiful setup. You answered my question uh, as expertly as anyone ever has in all of my years of doing this. I, I love the frame that we're in. Uh, I love the setup, and now it's going to get good uh, when we come forward. So you understand what Ronald uh, Olivier was going through. Uh, there's already a lot to interrogate just about his father. Uh, and um, I'm just listening to him. I've heard these stories so many times. His story is uniquely different because, as you'll learn as we move through this hour, he goes uh, from being uh, incarcerated uh, to being the director of chaplaincy out of Mississippi State Penitentiary. So it's it's, it's quite the story. There's a lot more to, to share with you. But I'm listening to Ronald talk, as I'm sure you are, and it never ceases to amaze me. All the hell that our community endured during this and because of this crack epidemic. I mean, I've heard these stories countless times, and every time I hear them, it just it makes my heart bleed and makes my heart weep every time, because you think of all the damage, um, the the collateral damage that was done to our community during and because of this crack epidemic. And we could talk about how that came to be. Uh, all I'll say is Negroes don't own no planes. And we don't all know. You get my point. Uh, anyway, um, this was visited upon our community in a variety of ways. And the stories of the damage done uh, never ceases to to amaze me. Uh, Rod Olivier is our guest in this hour. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. Let's get back to more of this rich dialogue with Tavis Smiley. Just getting started, really, in this hour, our guest is Ronald Olivier, sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for second-degree murder in one of America's most notoriously brutal prisons, the Louisiana State Penitentiary, better known, of course, as Angola. Uh, 
Ronald, let me let me come to a couple of things you've already said. Let me start by saying uh, I'm delighted to have you on. And since you mentioned New Orleans, let me shout out WBOK, 1230 AM, uh, our affiliate in New Orleans, on which this story is being heard by many New Orleanians right about now. Uh, so shout out to WBOK, 1230 AM in the city of uh, in the Big Easy. Um, so, Ronald, um, uh, tell me before we go before we go forward. I want to just pause for a second. Tell me more about your father. Uh, and, and I'm asking this question in part because when we hear stories like these of young boys, uh, 14, 15, getting lost and getting into the drug game and uh, in your case during the crack epidemic and now they've got weapons and they're, uh, they're involved in, in all kinds of activities, including violence, and they find themselves in prison for second degree murder, as you did. We'll come to that part of the story in a moment. But when we hear these stories, the first thing that comes to mind is that there was an absentee father. Uh, more often than not, we, we, we associate these kinds of stories with the father not being around. You mentioned that your father moved to Baton Rouge. I, I get that part. Uh, but your father was there. He was not an absent father. He was present. He was active. He was engaged in your life. And moreover, you said your father was your hero. So you don't have the typical story of an absent father. Tell me about your dad and why your dad was your hero. And then we'll go forward from there. Oh, my dad, my dad, I grew up, you know, um, like going by my dad on weekends and, um, you know, spending different, um, holidays with him and, and also, um, also the summers. And um, there was one school year that I actually did vice versa. And I, you know, spent the weekends with my mother. Mm-hmm. But my dad was, man, man, everything to me. He was very, he was a very disciplined father. He, he didn't play, but he was a very loving father. Mm. He, he was very intentional in his parenting and very strategic, you know. Um, and, Man, he was very loving. We he always took us fishing. Always, you know, took us places. Um, I can remember in 1985, I was 10 years old. He took us all on a cruise. That was our Christmas present. Mm. And so, um, he he always hung out with us, whether we were just on the ground, on the floor, in the living room, wrestling, you know, just just playing. And he was just a loving, fun father. You know, um, I can remember he had come in wee wee hours from from going out and just come in on the weekends and, and turn the radio up and wake everybody up in the house. And um, you couldn't go back to sleep till you <laughs> dance with it. You know? And so this was the type of father you were. Yeah. And yeah. so um, that, that, that really pained me when he left, you know, um, I had missed, I had really missed that. And, and I grew up in a neighborhood where a lot of guys didn't have fathers. Mm-hmm. You know, and so um, they didn't they didn't have that story. Their dad wanted to come and get them on the weekends, mm-hmm. you know, and spending time with them. And so that was common to see. And so I kind of I guess I made the trans translation that when he left and moved to Jacksonville, Florida, um, that that is I'm I'm fatherless now. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just like them. Mm-hmm. You know. And so, man, um, he was everything to me. No, I hear that. And I want to just pause for a second and to hear more about that uh, because uh, fathers who, who actually represent fathers who show up don't get shouted out often enough. Um, but when we hear stories like these, again, we will we will jump immediately to the absentee father narrative. But we don't shout out the dads who are there uh, representing uh, and loving uh, and dancing with their kids uh, at all hours of the night. Um, so, all right. 
that that's that. Let me get back to the story that you were telling a moment ago because uh, you, you sort of paused at the point where you're now carrying weapons. Um, you know, you're in the drug game, but the drug dealers are being uh, targeted and being robbed. And and that that raises the stakes now, because if you're going to rob somebody, you might as well go ahead and kill them so they don't come after you. Um, so th- this is a high stakes game uh, in the crack epidemic era. Uh, somewhere along the way, uh, you end up murdering somebody. You end up uh, yeah. having to face uh, allegations of second degree murder. Uh, take a moment to tell me that part of the story and we'll go from there, Ronald Olivier. And so on um, my life transition in, in the drug game and trying to survive. And so here it is. Um, I had got into an altercation with a guy. In fact, me and a couple of my friends had jumped him. And so the next time we see him is Christmas Day. You know, and it's um in downtown New Orleans on Canal Street, and um, and so I'm with two other guys, and he he felt like we were outnumbered. He was about six guys, and they began to file us and pursue us, and um, I had a gun on me, you know, and I had a friend of mine. You read about him, Leaky, um, telling me, you know, he he was like my voice of reason. I could have been always in trouble if it wasn't for Leaky. Mm-hmm. But um, Leaky like, man, let's just go, man. Let's just leave. I'm like, man, we just got out here, man. We're not leaving. And, and so I go here. We, we try to leave. I get We try to get on the bus. They try to pull me off the bus. I turn around and shoot. Um, um, two people end up in a pool of blood. And one survived and one didn't. So two days later, I end up um, at the juvenile bureau concerning this. And so I've been to the juvenile bureau a few times for some minor things, simple robbery, um, assault, um, theft, you know. And my mother come sign me out. And so I was just looking for my mother to sign me out on this one, mm-hmm. not realizing the seriousness of it. And so um, mother, mom couldn't sign me out that one. And you're you're what you're you're what age at this point, Ronald? I'm I'm 16 years 16. old. 16. There you go. All right. Keep going. I'm 16. And so here it is. Um, I'm there going back and forth to the juvenile courts. Uh, I think it was the second time I went. Um, they charged me as an adult, and I went was transferred across the street to the adult courts. And so they now charged me with first degree murder. I'm now. Um, facing the death penalty, and at like, at at, you know, at was, sixteen, at sixteen, at sixteen years old, mm-hmm. and so by the time I go to trial, I'm seventeen years old, and up until that point, everything was like funny games with me. I know I'm going home; it's not going to last long. I'm very optimistic about it, but um, when the jury was deliberating, um. And they put me in a holding tank. It was about 12 a.m., 1 a.m. in the morning. They put me in that cell. I could still hear that cell slam and the key um, turn um, as the guard walked away and leave me in a cell by myself. And everything got real to me then. And I started to think, okay, there's 12 people that don't know really anything about me that's making the decision on whether I live or die. Mm. And I start to think, man, I can really die. They can come back with, you know, guilty verdict of first degree murder. And I'm like, man, I don't want to die. And then 
I can hear this. Um, and I believe it was God using my mother's voice. My mother was a praying woman. And I thank God for her prayers. Um, she told me this one day. She said, she said, baby, if you ever in trouble that I can't get you out, you make sure you call on Jesus. And right there in the cell, man, I've been, I began to call on Jesus and cry out. I had a very simple prayer. Um, a lot of people say don't make you know, you're not supposed to make deals with God. I made a deal with him. I said, Lord, if you don't let them kill me, I serve you the rest of my life. And for the first time in my life, I didn't know what it was then, but um, for the first time in my life, I experienced the peace of God. It was a calmness that came over me and an assurance that somehow I was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. So they come back with the lesser verdict, um, which was the responsive verdict on um, second-degree murder. They come back with guilty for second-degree murder, and which I didn't know it carried a mandatory life sentence without benefits of parole or probation. And translates um, in layman terms, um, you die in prison. Mm-hmm. And so um, um, that kind of, that really stunned me then. But I still felt that that type of peace. You know, um, that assurance that I was going to be okay. I like to tell it like this. Um, in that holding tank, I, I think I received two life sentences, one from the state and one from the law. Mm-hmm. And um, and um, while, while they were giving me life, he was giving me life. Yeah. I believe his life swallowed up their life. Let me, let, let me jump. Yeah, I find myself on this journey. No. Yes, sir. I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, I wanted you to finish that point. Let, let, let me jump in, though. I, I want to ask a couple questions right quick here. One, and, I, and I'm jumping around and jumping ahead, and we'll come back. Um, but in retrospect now, we ain't got to the best part of your story, the miraculous release. Mm-hmm. They, 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 you're 17 years of age. Um, they're charging you as an adult. You now are facing a lot, not facing, you're serving now, a life sentence at 17 years of age. Um that peace notwithstanding, you still locked up for the rest of your life at this point. So in retrospect, now tell me right quick how you view, what's your view of the state charging kids, 16-year-olds, as adults? Oh, man, it's, it's horrible. And it was so hypocritical. And, man, um, because kids are not allowed to – to even buy cigarettes, that 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 kind of stunned me when I got to in gold and I saw um at the canteen they had a um sign up that um you can't buy cigarettes under the age of twenty one, <laughs> mm. but you can have someone in the penitentiary under the age of twenty one. Kids, you know, <laughs> at the age of sixteen, seventeen, you cannot um you cannot even um get married or go into the military. You know, they have all these limitations on kids because they're not fully mature. But you can let them go to the, the penitentiary. Let me let me let me let me pause let me pause on that for a second, Ronald. That that thing just hit me, man. It, it hit me, so I can only imagine how it hit you, and I want to hear specifically how it hit you. So here you are, you're seventeen, you are locked up for the rest of your life, and you see a sign that you can't buy cigarettes under twenty one but they locking you up for life at 17. How did you process that? Man, I, it, it really confused me. Yeah. And how how the state can do that, my my mind couldn't grasp it. You know, it didn't it didn't make any sense to me. I'm like, 
is this real? Is yeah. this a joke? You know? But um and then I went to thinking about how, you know, you couldn't buy alcohol, you know. You know, we used to get somebody, you know, um who was old outside the store to go in and buy sure, alcohol or something. Sure, sure. Because, you know, we couldn't get it. But here it is, you can charge me as an adult and give me a mandatory life sentence without benefits of parole or probation. This life completely gone. Let me man, that was that was so wrong. No, I I, I hear you. I, I just I wanted to pause for a second to just get your take in real time on how you now process the state uh, charging kids as adults and locking them up for life for a mistake made at 16 years of age. Um, let me ask you right quick here now about your father. You knew this was coming. You had to know it was coming because your dad was your hero. And now mm -hmm. you have disappointed and disappointed ain't a strong enough word, but you've disappointed right. the person who is your hero. So when you're in prison thinking about that, you're thinking what you don't let your, you don't let your dad down, Ronald. Right. And and still, I was kind of optimistic. I, I, I never forget I wanted to see him. And amazingly, just what, two, three weeks ago, um, they sent me a letter that I wrote them at the age of 17, right after I got, um, got sentenced. And I read the letter of this 17-year-old, <laughs> and it blew my mind. How um, I still was very optimistic. You know, I still was saying, man, it's not over. I'm not giving up. I said in the letter, I'm not giving up on God. And I just asked them not to give up on me. Mm. You know, and um, I, I apologized to them, the, the shame that I brought to the family, um, the embarrassment. But, you know, this is where I'm at, and I and I need y'all. You, 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 know, you, um, you, you, you just read this letter a few weeks ago? Just a few weeks ago, they sent it. There. They found it and sent it, and it blew my mind. Wow! What? What? Let me let me do this. I'm I'm, I'm out of time for a second here, at least. Let me continue when we come forward. I don't want to ask you a question to give you 25 seconds to answer. Uh, I, I want to know what's going through your head uh, now, all these years later. Right? We ain't got even to the best part of the story yet. I'm jumping around as I said, but I'm curious as to how you read that letter all these years later, of uh, what you were saying as a 17 year old kid who was uh, serving a life without the possibility, without the benefits of probation or parole, how you uh, read that letter now, all these years later. And then again, as I said, we, uh, we're going to spend some more time in this cell with Ronald Olivier and work our way up to this miraculous release that he was never supposed to receive and all the work he has done since then and doing even today. You're listening to Ronald Olivier on Tavis Smiley. You're listening to Tavis Smiley, Tavis Smiley, ranked number 45 on the heavy hundred list of the 100 most important radio talk show hosts in America. Sounds different, huh? This is Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley in conversation with Ronald Olivier. His book is called 27 Summers, My Journey to Freedom, Forgiveness, and Redemption During My Time in Angola Prison. If the title doesn't explain to you what we're talking about, then I can't help you. Uh, but that's the title, 27 Summers, My Journey to Freedom, Forgiveness and Redemption During My Time in Angola Prison. So let me jump right to that part of the story, Ronald Olivier, watching my clock here. Um, give me a sense of what it was like serving time in Angola. I mentioned earlier, it's one of the nation's most notorious 
uh, and brutal prisons. I've seen documentaries about it. I've, I've, I've interviewed people uh, connected to it. Uh, we all know about Angola. There, there, there are a number of prisons in this country that people just know by name. You say Louisiana, people know Angola. You say New York, we know Rikers. You say you say California. I mean, again, we it, it's sad, but we know many locales in this country uh, by the stories about the prisons in those particular areas. Um, so we know about Angola, but as a 17-year-old, uh, and for all the years, those 27 summers you were there, uh, how did you navigate being inside of Angola? And so by the time I get to Angola, I'm 18 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, 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 I was, what, um, 5'11", 131 pounds, didn't even have a string in my face. I looked like I was about 12. Mm-hmm. And so I entered these, i never forget going down the long 20-mile um, snake road to, to Angola, um, Tunica Hill. And I'm thinking about all the stories I heard about Angola. And one of the things was that they they preyed upon the young. Um, they were um, raped them and make them their girlfriends and do all type of things for them, you know. Mm. And it was treated like property. They'll sell them to another inmate for some cigarettes and things like this. And and so I had made up my mind um, that I'm going through this gate. I'll uh, I'm going through this gate of man, and I'm going to leave out a man when I'm walking. Or they sending me home in the box dead. Mm. I'll be a man, and so that's my mindset. And so I goes there. I go there with that chip on my shoulder mm. and and challenging anything that sounded that didn't sound right, you know. And um, just amazingly, you know, I thought it was because I was just so bad and I was, you know, not gonna let anybody just disrespect me and do anything. But retrospect, I can look back and see, man, God was protecting me. Um, he was orchestrating this whole plan, and I ended up going around a lot of guys who was willing to help me and not hurt me. So guys began to mentor me and see things in me I didn't see. You know, God pushed me to go to school to get my GED. Mm. Um, pushed me into public speaking classes. Um, um, just so many positive things. Um, and then soon after that, um. I end up in um in the Bible college, and you know, but 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 let me get. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Before that, you know, all these guys who were mentoring me and really discipling me and and really explaining to me what happened to me in that holding tank, and how you know <clears throat> it's a it's a must that I like update my mind and renew my mind to what happened to me in my spirit, you know, mm-hmm. because I was doing some of the same things talking the same way, had a real bad mouth with um, profanity. But the difference was I was being convicted. I didn't feel comfortable doing it anymore. I mm-hmm. knew something had changed, mm-hmm. but I didn't know how to, you know, to process. And so they went to telling me the perp, the, the, um, the importance of, you know, getting in your Bible, reading your Bible, um, fellowshipping with other believers, and, and developing the prayer life, spending time with God. And I went to doing that, and, man, my life went to changing. And it went to looking like on the outside what happened to me on the inside in that cell. Yeah. And yeah. No. soon after that, I found myself in the Bible college. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a Bible college that established there, the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. And I went to Bible college for four years and received a, um, a bachelor's degree in Christian ministry. 
Um, it was awesome. You know, they had professors that came from the outside that, you know, lectured us and give us exams, just like any other college. And we had a real graduation where we can invite family and friends. Um, we had caps and gowns. The faculty came with all their caps and gowns. They had a real Real um graduation ceremony. This is a perfect. And, this, is, um, this, this is a perfect place to yeah. j- to jump in because um, I we were talking earlier before the break about that letter um, that uh, yes. was sent to you that you just read literally a few weeks ago, reflecting, uh, which allowed you at least to reflect on uh, on your seventeen year old self. Before I get too far into the story, let me pause again and ask you to tell me what you saw uh, literally just three weeks ago uh, when you read what 17-year-old Ronald was writing. Man, I, I saw a letter of a little boy that was full of pain. Um, he was hurt because um, I was responding also to a request I had asked my dad. He was coming down to New Orleans for Mardi Gras, and I was asking him to come see me. And he told me, um, man, I don't, I don't visit jails. I don't visit prisons. Mm. And that crushed me, and I was responding to him, letting him know how that made me feel. And how if I had a son, I wouldn't care where he was. I was going to see him. And and so I was seeing a lot of hurt there. But overall, this would this would really bless me. Um, man, I saw I saw nothing but hope in that letter. Mm. I didn't see a hopeless little boy. You know how I actually thought I was into that letter. I was like, man, I was still full of hope. Mm-hmm. And I, I made a statement in there, um, and this is verbatim. I say, man, um, I'm, I'm not going to stop, and I'm not giving up on God. And I just pray y'all don't give up on me. Yeah. You know? Now, you, 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 mentioned, that, you mentioned that hope thing, and that uh, speaking of the Bible, that, that scripture just jumped out at me, that uh, if in this life we didn't have hope, we'd be of all men most miserable. If in most this life miserable. we didn't have hope, <laughs> We'd be of all yeah. men most miserable. Hope is a hope is a powerful thing, man. I, I was giving a speech not long ago, and I was making the point, Ronald, that you can build a whole life on nothing but hope. All you need is hope. You can yeah. build a whole life on nothing but hope. Uh, it's a powerful, it's a powerful uh, force. And um, uh, again, that that scripture yes. that, that yes. scripture came yes. to mind when you when you said you saw in that letter a young man who was seventeen facing the rest of his life behind bars. But you saw hope in that letter. Um, I, I can't I can't not ask you about your father. Um, your father sort of sounds like me. I have um, I've got I've got nine brothers and sisters, uh, and um, I can't begin to tell you the number of times. And of course, they 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 learn how I roll. Uh, I've put brothers and sisters through college. I've helped them buy houses. I've done all kinds of things. Uh, I've been blessed, and I pass those blessings on to my siblings. But they know that if you call Tavis to bail you out, I ain't responding. If you want me to come visit you, I ain't coming. I just don't. That's just that's my tough love. I don't do that. I'll help you in every pursuit. I'll talk to you. I'll counsel you. I'm there for you. But I don't do prisons. And I don't do bail. That ain't what I do. Um, you get yourself in trouble. You're gonna navigate your way through it. I'm gonna love you through it. But I'm like your dad. Uh, one can agree. Yeah. One can agree or disagree with that. But I'm like your, your dad and I are simpatico in that regard. We're the same. I know that had to crush you when your dad told you that. Did, my question is, did he oh. ever? Ch- did he ever change his mind about oh, visiting yeah, you in prison? Change his mind. Oh man, he visited me so many times. Okay. Oh, <laughs> amazingly, I'm talking about God and. And it was it was very odd because in the visiting shed, mostly you see is women. You don't see 
father and son. That right. wasn't common. Right. In the business year. Yeah. You know, and so my dad, um, I come from a very affectionate family. Um, man, my grandfather would greet us with hugs and a kiss on the jaw. My dad, mm-hmm. every time he hugged me, he gonna kiss me mm-hmm. on the jaw, even to this day. You know, yeah. and um, and so guys will see that in the business year, my dad hugged me and kissed me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> and, and it thought it strange, like yeah. man, you know what's going on here. And, uh, <laughs> and so, man, um, it, we had some amazing visits. Um, yeah, amazing visits. No, I'm, man. I'm, 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 I'm glad. I'm glad. Again, I said I'm like your father, but I'm glad the Lord worked on your father's heart. I'm glad your father came to visit you time and time again while you were incarcerated. Now we go when we come forward, we're gonna get to the the, the sweet part of this story. But that's a sweet story right there that his dad comes to hang out with him. And again, of course the shed is full of women. Why? As I said earlier, because most of these men come from absentee father families. And so that's why you got all these women there and ain't their daddy ain't coming to check them out. Daddy ain't been around their whole lives. It makes perfect sense to me. Uh but I love the story of his dad hugging him and kissing him and all the guys on the yard seeing that and having a hard time trying to process that. It makes sense. It's a sad reality, but it makes sense. All right, we we we've already established that he's in he's in prison, uh, in Angola. Not just a prison. This is Angola, tough prison. He's there for the rest of his life uh, without any possibility of parole or probation, and yet somehow he's out because he's talking to me right now on Tavis Smiley. Seeking the truth. Speaking the truth. This this is the Tavis Smiley Show. Ready to re-examine your assumptions and expand your inventory of ideas? More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Ronald Olivier, before I get to uh, this miraculous uh, release uh, that you ultimately encountered that you talk about in great detail in your book, 27 Summers, My Journey to Freedom, Forgiveness and Redemption During My Time in Angola Prison. Uh, Tell me about the person. There were two persons that you shot. Uh, one survived. They both bled, uh, both bleeding, of course, bleeding out. One survived. The other perished. Mm-hmm. And for that, you found yourself in prison for the rest of your life in Angola. Um, uh, obviously, you've you've had some remorse. You had a lot of time to think about that. But tell me what you thought about the person that you that you murdered. Um, and so once once my life began to change and God started to really renew my mind, I started to see life from a different perspective now. And and I start to value life, where um, life was devalued in the neighborhood where I grew up. Mm-hmm. It was common to see bodies, so you, you didn't really feel anything. But when God changed my heart, man, I'm starting to, man, I really took someone's life. Mm-hmm. That was someone's son. That was someone's cousin. That was someone, he had all these relationships connected to him. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm out. I never forget. I went to a class called Victim Awareness, and and it taught me about how it's a ripple effect of people that get hurt by just one person, you know, being murdered, you know, and and I and I thought about how many people that I hurt, mm. you know, and <clears throat> and also um um from my um transformation and developing a prayer life um. I started to pray for the mother of the victims. Out of every, every, out of everyone in the courtroom, I can't, I can't remember their face. I kind of vaguely remember the judge's face, but even my lawyer, I can't remember his face. Mm-hmm. Um, the DA, 
But this lady's face burned in my mind, the um, victim's mother. I could still understand right now crying. Mm. And and so I started to pray for her. I developed and I prayed for her more than I prayed for anybody in my life. And um because um man, I really had this great desire the one day to meet her and just to have a dialogue with her and just tell her how sorry I was. Mm. You know? That was greater than me going home. <laughs> you know, that was the pinnacle of, man, my desires right there. If mm-hmm. I could just, and I see stories like that on TV mm-hmm. of some reconciliation, and man, oh, man, always long for that. And, oh, man, very re- remorseful for what I had done. Yeah. yeah. Um, when we come forward, I could leave you hanging, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, I'm, I only have a few minutes left, but I'm not going to leave you hanging. I'm going to let Ronald tell you. Uh, this miraculous story of how he got out and all the work he's done since then. Uh, he went from incarceration to being uh, the chief chaplain at the Mississippi State Penitentiary. So he is paying it forward even all these years later. Uh, so it's not just remorse. He's paying it forward. But you'll hear the story of how he got out uh, when we come forward on Tavis Smile. Hope, agency, dignity. This is Tavis Smiley. Who do you trust to get at the truth? Tavis Smiley. Smiley. That's who. The conversation continues right now. I have literally, uh, Ronald Olivier, literally less than three minutes in this empowering uh, conversation about grace and forgiveness and how God can redeem and restore even the most difficult and unlikely situations. In 90 seconds, tell me, uh, and the folk can read it in the book, but just tease us with how you how you got out. You weren't supposed to ever get out, Ronald Olivier. And so in 2012, the United States Supreme Court came down with a ruling in Miller versus Alabama that said it was unconstitutional to give a juvenile under the age of 18 a mandatory life sentence. And so when they came down with that ruling, that made my sentence illegal. I filed a motion to reconsider on my sentence uh, to correct an illegal sentence and, and got it granted and went back and got resentenced. And there at the resentencing hearing, I got an opportunity to meet the victim's mother face-to-face. I took responsibility for the crime I committed for her son and asked her to forgive me, and she said, I forgive you. Oh, man, powerful. You, It's, it's more detailed in the book, but, man, I, I, I guess out in 2018 of November, in fact, this month on the 30th will make five years I've been home. I'm married. I have a little three-year-old son. Um, we just bought a home, man, um, my first home. Man, this God just been blessing me, miracle after miracle. Um, when I mm-hmm. got out, the, the warden, the former warden of Angola, Burl Kane, called me. He, he had begun to be the commissioner over co- Departments of Correction in Mississippi. And when he was looking for a chaplain, he called me. I get the job. I move my family there. And, man, the rest is history, man. <laughs> Went there and did some great things. The rest, as they say, is history. Or as we say around here, won't he do it, won't he will. Won't he do it, yes, he won't is. he will. The yes, book is sir. called 27 Summers, 
my journey to freedom, forgiveness, and redemption during my time in Angola prison. I told you it's a remarkable story, and I've just really scratched the surface on it. Uh, you have to get the book to read it for yourself. Again, 27 Summers, My Journey to Freedom, Forgiveness, and Redemption During My Time in Angola Prison. Let me just say this, Ronald Olivia, I'm out of time, but you have blessed us uh, in a mighty way uh, in this hour, and I want to thank you for it. Wish you all the best. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy holidays, brother. We deeply appreciate your work and witness. Yes, sir, man. Don't tell me what God can't do. Don't tell me what God can't do. You're listening to Tavis Smiley.